This is Fayette Forward, where we discuss trails, transit, city planning, and anything else that's on our minds. Our goal is to keep Fayetteville moving forward in a positive, inclusive, and intentional way that benefits everyone who lives in this great city in the Ozarks. You ready? Come on in. Welcome to Fayette Forward. I'm here with my co-host and wife, Meredith, and today we have a special guest. Britton Bostick is the City of Fayetteville's long-range planning and special projects manager who works with everything from historic preservation to development code amendments to transportation to sustainability to parks, arts, housing, and if that's not enough, there's probably a lot more that I don't even know about. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How fun. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your roles with the city, including while you're here? Yes. Uh, so I have not the longest job title, but I think one of the longest job titles for the city. And a lot of times people are like, what is long range planning? What does the long range planner do? Um, we do a lot to coordinate the city's work, if you can think about it that way. We do a lot of project management. We do a lot of work with the community to understand their goals and needs. And we do a lot to look at what does the city need to do to be prepared for the future. And every city has a different future focus. Every city has a different future condition they might anticipate. So what are Fayetteville's needs, both specifically to Fayetteville, but also in our region as a role of one of four major cities with a lot of smaller communities around us? That is a really good elevator pitch answer. <laughs> I've been working on it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, what brought you here? Because you've mentioned before the show that you're originally from the Austin area. I am. So uh, my job actually brought me here. The whole reason I'm here is this really incredible job. Nice. Um, but a little more background, which I think is really funny and kind of charming. My, uh, so my family's from Texas, back to 1834. Long, long, long time Texan uh, in the Texas Hill Country. And I was living in the Austin area, and my husband was in the Austin area. And we went to visit his grandmother, who's not doing very well, and she's uh, almost a lifelong Little Rock resident. And so uh, my husband's family has been in Arkansas for a very long time. And she said, I don't know why you wouldn't live in Arkansas. We have seasons here. <laughs> So and true. I thought, I wonder what kind of planning jobs they have in Arkansas. So I started looking and this role was available and I thought, well, that looks really like a lot of fun. Uh, and I was looking for kind of a, a new a new role and a growth opportunity from where I was previously. And so I applied and everybody thought it was a good idea, I guess. And so here I am. And thankfully, we also still think it's a good idea. So um, I came specifically for the job and fell in love because Fayetteville is really, truly amazing. I can't agree more. I love it here. Did you Were you familiar with Fayetteville before you moved here? Yes. Uh, so I'm a big SEC sports fan. Uh, I hate to tell everybody that I'm an Aggie, but it's true. So <laughs> graduate of Texas A&M University. I wear my Razorbacks shirt uh, around town. You'll see me at the farmer's market in a Razorback shirt. So no, no worries there. Um, but I was familiar with Fayetteville, and I'd actually been here once before. Um, both my husband's parents graduated from the university, so his family is very familiar. He was pretty excited to move up here and have the opportunity to come back. That's awesome. And, and now you're really entrenched in Fayetteville. I mean, you're literally planning the long-term vision for the city, right? And that's awesome. And that's perfect for our podcast because our podcast is called Fayette Forward, which I feel like you're like the guest. <laughs> I know. I, no pressure, right? I hope I don't screw it up. <laughs> no, no. We just want to learn from you because I think you have so much knowledge that a lot of people 
would love to hear from and hear about. So one thing just before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, uh, what area of the city do you live in? And I'm curious, like how you use the trails and transit around here. I live downtown and it's so fun to not have to drive very much. Um, I'm actually a probably get in the car once or twice a week kind of a Fayetteville resident. So our sidewalks and our trails mean a lot to me. Um, I use the trails for recreation. I use the trails to access businesses, to run errands. Um, I really will walk to the grocery store on a trail. Um, I think that's pretty great. Um, If I need more groceries than I feel like I can carry, I'll take a car. But so it's recreation for me. It's business for me. It's um, a great way to meet people. Uh, now that we've opened the Ramble, I have so much fun meeting people in the Ramble, uh, either at events that are down there or just walking through and just kind of, you know, casual interactions. And I think that's a lot about what good community planning is about, providing opportunities for interactions so we get to know our community better. And I think our trails and our sidewalks have done a lot of that for me. Before we get into the future and the present and all that stuff, I want to kind of dive into some of the history because that's one of your focus areas is understanding the history of Fayetteville and trying to figure out how we can maybe do some things better, maybe things we can learn from history. So you had mentioned in the pre-interview about the advent of the automobile and how that changed the fabric of Fayetteville. I'd like to hear from you just more about that. I could talk for days about this. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) No, well, it's so funny because a lot of people think of historic preservation as being solely about rules. Um, And it's about what color you can and can't paint your house. I hear that the most. Um, It can be about that. And if that's all historic preservation is about in your community, I'm so sorry because you're really missing out on what it could do for you. So um, in Fayetteville, we really don't have rules for historic preservation. So what do we do? Um, Here, it's a lot about elevating our community stories. It's a lot about understanding who is currently not included in that storytelling, what their stories are, what are the places and people who are important to those cultural groups. And also, uh, we have so many neighborhoods that we don't have a great inventory of how many properties are historic, and we don't have a great sense of what the stories are. Like, individual people or very few people may know the important stories, but as a community, we may not know those. So how do we get those out? And uh, you hear Funky Fayetteville all the time. It's not the new buildings that are usually thought of as being part of Funky Fayetteville, right? It's the old (laughs) buildings. It's the things that have been with us for a long time and that we really value. Um, But also, historic preservation is a great way to understand the context of the city that we live in today. And so there's a few, like, really pivotal moments of time in Fayetteville's history that are directly tied to transportation, and this is for me, why this is so fun, because you really have to start mentally putting yourself back in Fayetteville. Um, And so if you think about Fayetteville in 1828, when um, kind of the initial city founding happened, we're only five years away from our bicentennial, if you can believe it, 200 years. I know Fayetteville's almost 200 years old. Oh my God, that's so cute. So it's like 195 years ago, what what was Fayetteville like? Um, It was rough. (laughs) People were getting around on foot. They were getting around, if they were lucky, on horses. If they were real lucky, they had an ox-drawn wagon. Uh, For everybody who's played Oregon Trail 2, um, you know what I'm talking (laughs) about. you got to buy your Conestoga wagon, your teams of oxen. And um, that's not very far from what we had here in Fayetteville. Um, Mules. uh, So these are animals you had to feed and water and keep alive so that they could do work for you so that you don't have to walk up and down uh, these timbered hills. And then Fayetteville also had a lot of prairie. So we have so many trees in Fayetteville that we have a deep value for, but Fayetteville wasn't all trees uh, in the past. And so 
as we're developing a city, uh, you know, we're clearing trees so that we can build things. We're clearing trees so that we can get around. We're kind of scraping grass out of the prairie in certain ways. And we're trying to do that around a concentration of springs so that we have water to drink. But the more people come here because it's absolutely gorgeous and it's kind of the edge of, of settlement uh, in, in the way that we often think of it from the 1800s, the more people move here, the more we need streets. But our transportation options haven't really changed. And they continue to not change very much until after the Civil War with the arrival of the railroad. And now we're really talking. So when you have a railroad, you have access to building materials that are not local, which means you can get bigger windows. You can get steel for buildings. You can get bricks for buildings that aren't locally fired. You can get better timber. You can get fancy uh, building trim and decoration. And you can get so many more goods and then you can also put your own goods on the train to ship out so you have better economic opportunities. And we were an agricultural hub. We were sending tons of produce out uh, from local production. And so the train was like this pivotal moment in the local economy. And when the train comes in, you can have better wagon parts. You can have fancier wagons. You can have all these things, right? But then we get really uh, wild when the automobile comes here. And some of the stories around this are so hilarious. So uh, if you've ever eaten at Atlas Restaurant uh, on Block Street, it's in a building called the Ellis Building. And the Ellis Building is on the National Register of Historic Places. So the story of it's very well documented and it's online. Uh, but it was a car dealership and a gas station. <laughs> and so if you think about Block Street today, a car dealership and a gas station really doesn't fit the vibe, right? right? <laughs> people live there. There's churches there. Well, people were living there, and there were churches there in the 1920s when the Ellis Building was constructed. But the, there were a different kind of house than some of what you see there today, and the churches weren't as big as you see them. But the parking problems were the same. And so there's <laughs> documentation of this big fight in city council because the person who owned the car dealership in the Ellis building was parking all of his cars for sale in the street, and the neighbors were not having it. <laughs> and so the city council was like, well, you're going to be limited to six cars. I think it was six cars in the street. And he refused. Like, he just would not Whoa. comply. So then they're having to deal with how are we going to uh, make this guy comply and not put his cars up and down the entire of Block Street and, you know, people are getting aggravated. And this is a time also that the quantities of gasoline and vehicle oil were just skyrocketing in terms of consumption in Fayetteville. And I think about people driving around and they're, you know, you would have had one car and that would have been very precious because everybody didn't have a car. If you had a car or if you had a fancy car like Henry Tovey, he had the fanciest <laughs> car in town. He was very <laughs> proud of it. His car was in all the city parades. This is such a big deal. <laughs> And it's well photographed. There's a, a photograph of his car in City Hall. That's how, like, prominent his own, I think it was a Packard. So these cars are, like, dripping oil and gasoline <laughs> all over town as they're bumping along on dirt roads. And then we're starting to have parking problems 100 years ago in the downtown. And so it's really, you know, not to diminish what people's concerns are today, but at the same time, we've been complaining about parking downtown for 100 years. <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah. Some things don't ever change. And it's like, how do you know that? It's in the city council minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we have them that far back and, and further. So uh, so as, as people are kind of attaching more and more to the car, you see these stables in people's yards disappear and they have to be used for other things. Well, I'll just change my horse stable or my, you know, where I kept my carriage or my wagon. I'll just change that to an automobile garage. And so maybe the structure stayed kind of the same little accessory structure in the backyard, but you needed driveways in a different way and people had to park places. And then these were not the cars that we have today. They were dripping oil all 
over the streets. And so you kind of have this mess. And then we get paved streets, and that's so much better for these, like, really fancy cars that people have. Um, and it's better for us today. But that's at the same time that the modern movement was really taking hold. And it's important to note that the modern movement in Fayetteville was so much more than Faye Jones architecture. That's really important because we had a school of architecture here and we had a university here that had exposure to the whole world and that brought in some really prominent ideas nationally and internationally and the modern movement was a big one. And people often associate building styles and architectural styles with the modern movement, but what often gets missed is that the modern movement was really influential in transportation planning. Frank Lloyd Wright was a go fast now in cars kind of an idealist, and he wrote a lot and designed a lot around this notion of a modern city that focused on personal vehicles. And other planners and other architects and thinkers and designers did as well. And so that was very influential in how cities got redesigned and really rebuilt through the middle of the 20th century. And you see that in Fayetteville. We lost a lot of historic buildings because people wanted parking lots for these cars because cars were the best thing that we could have. And when land is really cheap, maybe that works. And when cars are this like new, awesome thing that everybody wants to have, um, then maybe that's a great thing. But it's important to know that that left a lot of people out at the time, and it's still leaving people out today. And so as much as Americans were kind of like really buying into this notion of go fast now in a car and highways and, and efficiency, and, and this is like the American dream, right? Um, for a lot of people, they weren't able to achieve that dream, and that carries forward into today. And so uh, all of that background is really important to why do we invest in trails? Why do we invest in sidewalks? Why do we have to repair roads? It's all coming from the last, I don't know, 60, 70 years of thinking about American cities. And we get to look at that today and say, is that something that we want to continue with? want to do it differently. And for so many people in Fayetteville, we want to do it differently, not because what we have necessarily doesn't really work, um, but I think because what we have today is a reflection of one preference, and we have so many people in our community who have other preferences. So when we build a trail, it's not because we think everybody should ride bikes only. It's so that people who want to ride their bikes have that option to do so if that's available to them. And then hopefully that frees up a little more room on our streets so that everybody who has to drive across town at 5.15 p.m. on a Friday has a little bit more room to do that. Yeah. And that definitely sounds like someone who moved here from Austin because you know what traffic is like and you know what it's like to see a city just explode in, si in size over the years of living there. Absolutely. I lived there at one point when it was, I think, 500,000 people. And now it's probably three times that size, if I had to guess. Yeah, I think I think the metro area is about that. Yeah. I, I can remember when you could drive across Austin in 15, 20 minutes. Wow. Um, and now... You can't get through a couple of stoplights probably in 15 to 20 yeah. And I do think that there was always that refrain of, oh, it's it's because they didn't think ahead. They didn't think about alternative transportation. It was always about kind of widening freeways and things like that. And so it's interesting to get your perspective having moved here, having been through that, and saying we're not trying to say no cars. We're trying to give people other options. Yeah, for everybody who, you know, like for me. So I live downtown, and I have a lot of choices. Um, and that's the important thing, right? I have a lot of choices. It doesn't mean I can't drive my car um, unless we're having like a huge parade downtown and I have to wait a while uh, to be able to get out, um, which is 
uh, I have to pay attention to like parade route stuff, right? Because <laughs> like, okay, can I can I get out to go uh, run an errand? But I can take my car if I want to or if I need to, and that's great. But I can also walk. I can also take a bike. I can also do a few other things. Uh, you know, when uh, when I'm babysitting for friends' kids, it's so easy to take a stroller for the most part. There's a couple of like sidewalks that need curb ramps still. So I'm not saying we don't have improvements to continue to make. But when people have options and when they have options that fit their individual needs better, we all benefit from that truly. And so that's really what we're working on, um, knowing that biking isn't available to everybody, walking isn't available to everybody, but when we have safe paths that give them a variety of options, um, we can all really benefit from that. And then, you know, if all of a sudden your car dies and you're having trouble, you know, why should that prevent you from being able to access something that's at least close enough that you could get there by other means, um, assuming it's not like a longer drive that you need to take? That's great. And, you know, just having safer ways to bike and walk is huge because I think a lot of people, that's the biggest barrier too, is just, you know, people say, oh, you can just ride on the street. It's like, yeah, but have you ridden a bike on the street? It's oh my an gosh. awful experience. Can I, can I tell them I didn't ride a bike for 26 years? Yes. Story? Uh, so this is really funny. I really admire people who, who bicycle a lot. And I think mountain biking is so cool. And the whole thing just terrifies me. <laughs> so I was in a couple of pretty spectacular bike wrecks when I was much younger. Uh, I had a really big one when I was six. I had an even bigger one when I was 12. Like gear cut into my leg kind of business took a while to recover. And that just really put me off of bicycling, <laughs> honestly. Um, and so I did not ride a bike for 26 years and just got on a bike um, in May again to do a, kind of a, a beta test of a downtown bike tour. And I was so nervous riding in the street and there was not even any traffic. So it's not like I'm trying to whiz around cars and, and you know, just like, con no, I, it was just the speed of going on a bicycle, which is thrilling, but also um, you know, I'm a little bit older now and I'm thinking through like, what happens if I go over the handlebars? This is a terrible outcome, you know, because I didn't feel very confident. And when you're asking people to take a bike, but they don't feel confident using that bike, either maybe they may not have experience or practice, or they may not have a very good bike to use. I hear that bike quality makes a big difference. Uh, and so, you know, I think those are important considerations. How can we give people the option to become more comfortable with that mode of transportation um, until they're kind of at the point that they feel like, yeah, I could run errands on my bike. And I have friends who are just absolute masters of their bicycles and can do that really successfully. And they ride their bikes to work and home and they run errands. And I think that's a lifestyle I'd really like to participate in. But I think I feel like I need a lot more practice and time to get comfortable with that before I can fully participate. And I'm not sure that other people don't feel that way as well. Oh, 100%. Because as much as I don't like driving, I don't feel 100% confident doing everything on a bike. I I have a really heavy e-bike. And if you take a certain turn too slowly, then it'll, it'll just kind of tip over. And so there are all these things to consider. If you need to go and get some home improvement tools, where do you park it securely? How do you get things oh, right. home? I mean, there's so many things that go with that. We have good friends who ride their bikes only. And they don't live in downtown. They live up in kind of the uptown area. And they've been able to make it work. And I think it's really cool. And we're hoping to get them on the show to share some of their tips. Ooh, I would love that. Yeah. I mean, they're filled with tips, how to dress, what type of bikes to have for different conditions. But I also think you have to have a certain amount of privilege to be able to have multiple bikes or be able to like have the space in a garage, maybe to have a bike tool so that you... Or even have a garage. Yeah, even have a garage. Exactly. And just to have the space to work on a bike. 
And then it takes time. It takes energy. You have to be able to pay for the things to fix the bike. So there are a lot of conversations about that, but they're pretty frugal and they're really cool. And so hopefully we'll get them on to talk about those things. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned just now is that when you go on a bike somewhere and you want to lock it up, I see this getting better and better, but some businesses will have these really janky racks that like aren't even bolted to the ground and like you could cut through them with a piece of like a scissors and you're like, can't we just pay for everyone to have like those big hefty U-shaped things in every uh, business? I feel like it shouldn't be that much money to get the whole city just blanketed with those. And I've, I'm wondering if you know anything about if there's, I know I've heard there's incentives for that, but is that actually happening? So that's interesting you bring that up. Um, and this is where we have um, like n- current development requirements. And then we also have not having had those requirements for a very long time. And so currently, um, if we're going to do a commercial building in particular, um, bike racks are a yes. Uh, we need you to have those. We need them to be installed. And that's, you know, show them on the plans, install them when we come out and do the final inspection to make sure it meets all of the requirements. And so it's really easy to do that for new construction. It's a little more challenging to retrofit um, because, like, what would kind of be our mechanism to get people? So then I think we are looking at incentives, which I'm not directly familiar with, but I do like this notion. Uh, and where I was uh, living previously in Texas, uh, we were the red poppy capital of Texas, which is a story tied to uh, a World War veteran who brought poppies home for his mother. It's this really endearing story. But they turned the bike that into like a city bike rack design with kind of red poppies as part of the design element. That's cool. So they were super functional, but also very much of the place. And I like thinking about things like bike racks like that, where you need it to function, but also it can be this like great moment of acknowledging the place that you're in. And that's like a really accessible kind of feature so that you're not talking about redoing a whole building facade. You're just talking about a bike rack that gets bolted into the concrete. And it becomes public public art. Yes. Public art. Oh, what a great place to incorporate some public art and the creativity of our community um, and have people have some ownership. And like now all of a sudden biking and bike racks are connected to like other things in our community that are important and meaningful. Definitely. And you just made me think of the 71B corridor and how that's going to sort of transform transform what's, you know, kind of a an inspired strode, if you will, into something that's more walkable and more beautiful and probably going to have a lot more art. That just reminds me of using bicycling as art, as placemaking. Are there thoughts on making kind of all of Fayetteville part of this placemaking movement? Or is it more focused like purely on downtown? We're going to make it this urban core do you see do you see kind of like hubs or nodes or is it going to be more of a, a centralized place that Man, spreads out? That's a good question. And I wish I wish I had like a super concrete answer, but um, in progress. But I think you've pointed out something really great is that we're making some pretty strategic investments that did start as downtown as, as kind of the origin point of those investments. So if I can give you a little bit of transportation background, sure. and these are things that I think it's really important for our community to know. RDOT, the Arkansas Department of Transportation, was basically responsible for 71B or College Avenue, um, for the longest, because it was a state highway. 
right? And so when the state has a state highway and state right-of-way, meaning the state owns the land and controls that property, even if it goes right through a city, uh, the state supersedes the city. Their, their authority is always higher than ours. And so if the state says, here's how we do state highways, even in urban areas, um, that's something that we don't have a lot of control over or say in. So sometimes when people call and they say, what's going on with this? You should do it differently. The answer is, well, we're not able to do it differently because that's state right-of-way because there are so many state highways that go through Fayetteville. The really cool thing about 71B is that it came into city ownership as a right-of-way, so they transitioned it out of uh, RDOT's oversight and kind of direct control into ours. RDOT still has oversight on it, but it's given us the opportunity to do this 71B work. Uh, we're trying to pair our funding uh, and bond funding with federal funding, so it feels really slow because federal funded projects are really slow. There's a lot of requirements and a lot of things you have to do. But what's exciting about it is that now we are able to have influence and decision making over how that is for us. And so if we can go back to history a little bit, there was a time in Fayetteville that backing directly from a business parking lot into a highway was totally fine, right? It wasn't a big deal yeah. if you needed to just like pull up and then back right out into a state highway. Well, 100,000 people and a whole lot of visitors, and that's no longer a safe option. It's an option that can cause uh, real safety concerns for our pedestrians and cyclists, for other drivers, for yourselves. So it's not something that we allow you to do anymore. But we have so many properties along that strip of used to be state, well, still kind of state highway, um, that didn't, they haven't really been changed since all of that transition. And so those properties... Um, if they haven't transitioned, we're at a point where we need to help them transition. And so uh, I've been working with property owners and business owners on what those transitions look like to make it safer so that we're reducing the number of potential conflicts for pedestrians, for cyclists, and for vehicle drivers. A lot of people don't realize, and I certainly didn't realize, we have so many uh, large truck deliveries along College Avenue to all of our businesses. Mm -hmm. And those delivery trucks need to be able to, to be there and, and provide the, the goods that we all enjoy, whether that's food deliveries, whether that's, uh, you know, products that we're all purchasing, uh, or that these businesses are kind of uh, repackaging or, or sending out via online sales. There's just so many reasons why. So we need College Avenue to work the way that is successful for us today. And that's very different from what it was in the past. As we've gone through public engagement, uh, somebody commented to me that they didn't understand why we would build bigger sidewalks for College Avenue because nobody walks there anyway. <laughs> and that is like, oh, can we talk? <laughs> but can we talk about that? You know, people do walk there, but they don't safely walk there, and we don't have complete sidewalks, and a lot of our sidewalks are not in good condition along there. And so, um, but what if you could? What if you could walk by businesses? What if that was um, something that you could walk from downtown up to college, and you're getting your exercise in, you're accomplishing your errands, you're going to eat, and it's kind of all happening at once, or it's some of our gorgeous Fayetteville weather that we have so often, and you know, you're like, I'm just going to walk there today. And that's really what's going to be a great experience for me. Or for all of our bike commuters, what if you could safely, you know, bike along a sidewalk on College Avenue, because we don't want you in the street there. The lanes and the traffic just really 
really don't make that feasible for you. But what if you had a complete sidewalk and what if you had fewer driveways to cross as you're biking? And what if you could feel safer and more confident? And then let's go a step further. What if you had adequate lighting? What if you had separation between the sidewalk and the street curb so that you aren't right next to these big trucks whizzing by you, you know, at fast speeds? And so as much as those changes are can be difficult, and I often hear from drivers, um, I don't like this because I have to drive slower and because it's like kind of hard to navigate. I'm so sorry, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to slow you down. We're trying to make it harder to drive in your vehicle so that you do have to pay attention to all of the things that unfortunately when people miss could result in a person fatality. And that's really what we're dealing with. Um, our our transportation team um, and, and our mobility uh, kind of transportation staff, uh, y'all probably know them as Matt and Dane. They're fantastic. They mm -hmm. gave a really good presentation to our city council last night. Matt was talking to the city council about a map we have that shows traffic fatalities and serious injury accidents. And there are actual hotspots in the city of Fayetteville where we've had way too many conflicts between pedestrian, cyclists, and vehicles. And we don't want that trend to continue. And uh, he reported that we've had 26 fatalities in the time period of that map data. And that's 26 too many. Mm -hmm. So how do we preemptively address these things. And then a question a, a community member asked me just this morning on the phone. She said, well, I understand why you would want to look at where these uh, accidents and these fatalities occur, and you would want to address those areas. But what about areas that are going to grow here shortly in the next few years that aren't part of your, your, you know, your, your project planning at the moment? How do those not be part of the map in the future? And it's such a good question. Uh, and one of the reasons why I love to take phone calls from our community, because they help me understand things that we may not be seeing um, from our kind of like very rational engineering approach where we try to say, oh, what's the problem? Let's address the problem. And our community is saying, let's not even let it be a problem. And I really love that. Yeah. And on that note, are there other things that people have brought up to you that others, listeners of ours might benefit from hearing your answer to, you know, just things that you've heard from people that maybe you were surprised by. Are there any other in that vein? Yeah, I had a really uh, interesting conversation. I say this as, as not a very frequent cyclist. Um, and somebody uh, noted for me that they thought uh, where they lived in particular, so they're in the very south end of Fayetteville, not in South Fayetteville, but the very south part of the city, um, they said, you know, it would really be helpful for us if we would have sidewalk connections because riding bikes, you know, on, uh, you know, they're at South School. It's still 71B, but instead of College Avenue at South School. So if you're going to ride your bike, um, there's not a place to do that out of the road. I don't feel comfortable in the road. I don't feel comfortable for my teenagers to be in the road. So what can the city do about that? What are y'all doing about that? And that was like a really interesting question. So one of the first things I do when people call and ask me about things that are going on that I can look at on a map is I pull up the map and I say, where are our trails? Where are our sidewalks? And we've got maps that show me this really quickly. And these are all available to the public. And they're on our website. If you look for GIS maps um, and then if you learn to navigate through the layers, it's super fun. You can see lots of cool things. But I looked at the map and I saw that what she was talking about included an area that had a trail that you could take. That was, I was like, oh, so I'm seeing a trail and I'm hearing her say, we don't have what we need for, to, you know, cycle safely. And so rather than saying, well, we have a trail, that's what you should use. I started to think about, okay, how is my perception of this different than her perception of this? And I realized as I kind of followed the trail a little bit, we were on the phone, 
the trail probably added like a mile and a half to mm -hmm. the distance that they would have to go compared to just a straight shot along South School Avenue. And that's so important if you're walking or cycling, right? Because if the expectation is, well, you have a route to take, this is going to be pretty inconvenient for you overall, then people are not going to be very likely to do it. So it's a little bit, uh, again, why I love to take these phone calls, because you can say, oh, well, we have a trail, and that would be true. But you can also think through, oh, how is that not serving people the way that we need to? And then how can we be, you know, thinking about how that gets prioritized? Yeah. Uh, I've had a number of senior uh, citizens in Fayetteville um, talk to me about what their concerns are. And so often we really take for I think we take shade for granted here. And so coming from Texas, like shade is something that you're like really focused on because it's hot as all get out. And uh, anytime you have shade, it's like a great relief from a hundred and whatever degrees it is that day in the summer. Uh, and then of course in the winter, maybe you get an ice storm and then it all falls on your head. So that's a whole <laughs> different thing. Uh, Texas is a place of extremes. But in Fayetteville, I think it's not just that we like trees because they're pretty and it's not just because they are great for our kind of our environment in total. Trees are a really important aspect of safety in transportation and comfort in transportation. And for our seniors, even if they live in a senior community, um, it, they don't necessarily want to be enclaved in there, right? They may want to go for walks and they may want to feel safe and comfortable. And so some of the concerns I've heard is if the city is going to do a street widening project, are we going to lose our trees? Meaning the trees that we walk past as we're walking on, uh, you know, maybe if it's a little sidewalk, like a three foot wide sidewalk, because they un people understand very intuitively that if I if the city widens a street and I lose these trees that that are an important part of my comfort and my sense of safety on this walk because I've got a whole line of really nice trees between the street and me, then uh, people understand that transportation project to not be a positive outcome for them. And so then they're like, I don't want this to happen because the change represents um, a threat to me. It represents uh, a lack of comfort and I may no longer choose to participate in what for me is like a great form of exercise. I think that is part of what needs to be our decision-making criteria because sometimes we do need to add capacity to our roads so that we can move more people because we have more people. But how can we balance that with understanding our community's needs, even if it's like a more specific segment of the community, but trying trying to mitigate that a little bit. So when people talk to me, oftentimes I'm learning a whole lot more than they are, I think, because I'm trying to understand what is the experience they're having that uh, is behind what they're voicing to me as a concern. Or, um, you know, then sometimes we just get into discussions about what's the process? Uh, what does it look like to have federal funding? Why do things take so long? Uh, why can't the city do anything right? Um, I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. But usually when people have a lot more information about what's behind all of that, um, you know, you're talking about uh, needing to have the right tool for your bike and needing to have, you know, all these things. It's like, I think you just described long range planning. Like we have big <laughs> ideas and we, that we want to do, like we want to ride the bike, right? But you have to have all these tools in the right place and you have to have them available to you to do that successfully. And so sometimes I'm working on the big ideas and a lot of times I'm working on the tools for how we get there. Well, since we're in the present and talking about what's happening now, I'm really curious to hear, you know, over the last five to 10 years, what do you think Fayetteville has done really well? And what do you think it has room for improvement on? And how has that informed what you're planning to do in the future? Oh, this is such a good question. So 
I think my very favorite thing about living in Fayetteville is how much everyone else also loves living in Fayetteville. Yes. And, uh, you know, being at the farmer's market to do public engagement, I hear so much and feel so much of how much people love to be here. When people are visiting for sports games or for other great reasons, they like I think they pick up on that. I think people really feel that. And I think this community should be so proud that we've gone through the pandemic, which was so separating for so many people. And the city had some pretty rigorous requirements that I know felt very separating for folks. The fact that we've come through that and we are still a community that loves Fayetteville, I think is something to be proud of and something to really celebrate. And also the care and the passion that people have for their neighbors here is so wonderful. Um, I hear community advocacy and community member advocacy here in a way that's really unusual uh, and not very common in my experience. And so to have people express that much love and care for each other is kind of a wonderful thing. And honestly, I think that's what we do the best. I think that's why sometimes we have contentious conversations and we're willing to tackle difficult things because we love our community that much and, and we have that love for each other. And, um, you know, the the Pride weekend this past weekend, I think, was just a great illustration of that. You have so many people who felt safe and felt that they could actively participate, bringing their true selves and that, I think, is something this community ought to be really, really, really proud of because it's such a beautiful thing and I think such a meaningful thing for us. I don't think every community shares that. Um, something that we could work on, um, I so I think it's also kind of related to coming out of the pandemic. Communication is really challenging, I think. Uh, one, because we're all really pretty overwhelmed by communication. Um, and so everybody doesn't need one more meeting and one more email and one more social media post and one more Zoom link. And, you know, like we don't need one more of those. Right. But those are the ways that we've traditionally communicated with the public or the city as an organization has communicated with the public. And maybe, you know, other organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, have communicated with the community as well. I think we're maybe struggling a little bit with what is the best way to communicate right now. And I don't have the best answer to that. I'm not sure I have an answer to that. I just know that it's something that really needs a lot of work to figure out what are people's needs, what works best for them, and how do we successfully get the information? Because if I'm working on a project and I've had public meetings and it's been in the paper and it's been posted on the city's website and it's been on our social media and people have shared it and I have a direct contact list for emails and I've called some people and I've told the city council about it and I've told our historic commissions about it or our planning commissioners about Like if I've done all of that work and then I still constantly hear, I had no idea y'all were doing this. Something's not working. Yeah. Right. And so how do we do better to communicate with people? Because that ends up answering a whole lot of other things. I think if we can get communication down and I think you know, we didn't have a lot of opportunity to gather together in person for discussions uh, for a long time. And so our are people actually going to show up anymore? Um, you know, I don't know that our public meeting attendance is quite what it was pre-COVID. And so um, what is it that people want? And maybe they just don't want more meetings and more emails. Mm -hmm. So then what else do we do? And, and how do we make sure that people get the information that they want and that they need so that they can participate in the way that they choose? That's really important. Absolutely. 
Well, shifting gears, like bike gears. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Yeah, thanks, man. Let's talk trail-oriented development because I know that's a really big focus right now yeah. for the economic health of the area, for getting people to use the trails for actual transportation as well as recreation. What have you seen as far as trends go with, you know, building businesses along the trails? I know we've seen some restaurants, we've seen some breweries. Have you heard any talk of additional types of businesses, maybe more of the same? So I I haven't heard of any like super big push or like all of a sudden we're going to see a game changing kind of situation. But I think this is one of those things that we're going to have to look at uh, in terms of where is a good place for this to happen and where do we maybe want trails to stay more natural? And I think this is the balance that we're trying to strike in Fayetteville constantly. Where do we want these great amenities to be and these resources and things that we enjoy? Because how fun is it to be able to like bike down a trail, hop off, park and lock up your bike, sit on a patio, enjoy, you know, a that's beer, enjoy some tacos. Like for so many of our community, like that's about as good as it gets, mm -hmm. right? And that's a really, what a wonderful thing. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, people who will come visit us for that, to have that experience with us. But I don't know that you want patios with tacos and beer along every single sure you know, mile of trail, right. right? And so how do we also retain some of these beautiful, like natural uh, experiences that we have where you can see rabbits or you can see deer or you can have a butterfly flutter yeah. across and, you know, see, I'm kind of obsessed with plants. So a lot of people don't know this, but um, I am really obsessed with plants up here and I will stop and look at almost anything. What is we do that? the same. What's the leaf pattern? <laughs> have I seen that before? Yep. Oh, you know, and I'll try to identify it. And if it's, you know, if it's got flowers on it, I'm definitely going to come to a dead stop and investigate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because living in Arkansas is like living in a flower box or like a florist compared to where I'm from, which only has wildflowers one time a year. And then cactus flowers, you shouldn't touch those because you're going <laughs> to regret that decision. I've regretted that twice in my life, really substantially. Um, so, you know, there's these beautiful things that we don't want to lose either. And so what does it look like for us to say, um, you know, things like uh, I know the our Sega's at the depot is like deeply embedded in, in Fayetteville's cultural memory, right? There's so much affection for that experience and everything that came with it that was so wonderful. So those are the experiences we want to continue to have and we want to continue to support our community having. So I think a lot of that is about identifying, really, are there any constraints currently to properties that are along our trails being developed successfully in a way that helps kind of um, bring that sense of community and that gathering space or that amenity directly to the trails themselves. And we have examples of that kind of through the downtown and on both ends of the downtown. But also, where are places where we would really want to hold that back so that our trails are not only a way for us to just bike and walk, but they truly serve as the sense of, um, are y'all familiar with the Enduring Green Network in Fayetteville? I've heard of it. So uh, it's this mystical, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so the Enduring Green Network is a concept that um, all of these uh, important natural places can be interconnected by these threads and corridors. Um, and a lot of times those are streams. 
A lot of times that's where uh, floodwater paths are. A lot of times that's where we retain natural areas um, that are maybe in, in flood prone areas. But those are also great places to keep natural connections between uh, nodes like parks so that you can go from park to park but through kind of a natural area. Figuring out where those natural corridors are best suited to be and, and will thrive versus our kind of like built up corridors and where those can thrive, I think is something that we're going to be taking a closer look at in the future. And I think it's something that we want to evaluate now that everybody's kind of like back in action, right? And we have all these bike oriented businesses uh, in Fayetteville, and we've got, you know, just a real focus on, on bike oriented activity right now. I think that's a good one. So I don't have like the best answer to that other than I think those are the two aspects we really want to investigate balancing as we move forward. That makes a lot of sense, especially if you think about the fact that we've got this giant loop that sort of comprises the main areas of the city. But then you've got all the spokes, if you think of that as kind of, I guess, the wheel. And then you've got all the different spokes connecting places. It's, all the bike references. I know, it's so lame. But but in general, I think it's really interesting how we've got this great network. And you really can get around using only a bike as long as you've got a place to stop. We always talk about this, how the weather will just kind of roll in here. Ooh, yeah. And sometimes you might be in the middle of one of those just gorgeous green spaces where you're like, this is heaven on earth. And then all of a sudden the skies open up and you're just getting pelted with hail. Yep. And so it's we always fantasize about like each of those kind of corridors within a certain amount of, of I guess, distance or rideability that someone could access something they might need. What It might not be tacos and beer, but like shelter or fluid or air. Idea. Um, thank this you. is the first time I'm hearing this. Ah! I love this idea. <laughs> well, this is something that we're always talking about. I think because I'm thirsty all the time. You've probably seen me guzzling water. So um, that's just one of the reasons, just selfishly speaking. Oh, it'd be really cool if I could fill up my water bottle somewhere. But that's also really just safety. Important. Yeah. What a great idea. So that's not something that I'd like actively incorporated into my thinking about how these things relate to each other. But that's something that I will now be thinking about as I think through like how do, how do our trails function and, and the things along them? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is that since we are trying to kind of mitigate the the growing pains of any big city, just, hey, let's get people on their bikes more so that they're not stuck in traffic. You don't want people to get on their bikes and feel like, well, this is even more inconvenient because... XYZ. I think you have to make it easier for someone, easier and more enjoyable for somebody to get somewhere via foot or bike versus car if they're going to do it. Because otherwise, at the end of the day, we're like creatures that like to take the path of least resistance. And if that's a car, even though I hate driving, I might just get in a car because it's like, well, it's 100 degrees out and there's nowhere for me to stop and refill my water along the way. Right. Well, yeah. And that personal safety is a really important part of mm -hmm. success, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't feel like you're going to be safe, why would you do it? Or even worse, you don't feel safe, but you have no other choice but mm -hmm. to do it. And that's also not, you know, something that that is a good idea or something that we would want for people's experiences. So uh, places of respite, I think, are really important um, as, as, you know, something to think about. And that could be, like you said, a multiple of things. Maybe it's like shelter and water refilling, or it could be like, this is where we're stopping for lunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I grew up going to JJ's Convenience Store, and that was kind of the one place in my neighborhood I could access via foot. I, I grew up in the city of Strodes, and it has, 
just as black and white from Fayetteville as you could possibly get in terms of like a really car-oriented development versus Fayetteville. So it's been really interesting, but I know when I was a little kid, I was permitted to go to JJ's. That was the one place I could go alone or with friends. And we would go there and it did not have anything fancy, but it had something. And so it was just so nice to have that little destination. Or if you're out biking with your friends in the neighborhood, you could go get a bottle of, at that point, you weren't buying water. It was like a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke or something or some gummy bears. But it was just so nice and so liberating, I think, for kids as well to be able to just like bike over somewhere with some cash and actually just make a purchase and feel like grown-ups. And you can still go to JJ's in Fayetteville, multiple locations. Oh. Multiple locations. See a show, drink a beer. <laughs> That's On right. the trail in many instances. And there's no X-rated video section in that one. So, I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> probably better than the one I went to. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little, you had mentioned the nature and that being uh, a barrier of set sorts in, to trail-oriented development in that we want to maintain that nature. And I agree, I love the nature here. I was wondering, though, if... I think you could have more businesses along the trail, but have some sort of mandate to say you must have trees kind of like right in front along the trail and then you kind of weave through the trees to get to the patio. Mm. So because I always love businesses that are like almost like a tree house, mm-hmm. like it could be a ground level, but like in the trees amongst the trees. And I feel like if you just say, hey, you can be on the trail, you have to be set back a little bit and then you have to have a canopy of certain types of trees that you mandate. That also goes towards this, another question I have, which is the I know there's like a 40% coverage rule or something like that in Fayetteville as far as like tree coverage. Do you know anything about either of those things? Yeah. Uh, so the, the first thing that you're talking about, like should buildings be set back from the trail a certain distance or be required to kind mm-hmm. of have like plantings or landscaping in between, um, that is tied directly to our development regulations. So a few different parts of the city's code. Um, The city has a code of ordinances, which is the umbrella for all of the city's rules. And then there's a specific part of it that's called the Unified Development Code. We adopted a Unified Development Code in 2003, so it's 20 years old. Um, Funny enough, that was a year that a lot of cities adopted a Unified Development Code. That was kind of seen as like a really efficient way to get all of your zoning and development regulations together in one document. So in some cities, the zoning code... Uh, or the regulations for how land is used are separate from things like maybe subdivision regulations, which are um, like much more technical specifics. Um, if you've ever had to plat a property, and, and a lot of people have not, so if you haven't, don't feel like you're left out. <laughs> but um, subdivision rules are basically like the division of land, and then zoning rules are how land is used. And those two things come together in a unified development code. So that's why that's important. Our Unified Development Code lays out all of those regulations, and so zoning is things like these setbacks and things like uh, how how many tree you have to preserve or how many plantings you have to put back uh, or if you have to put at all. And so when we look at trail-oriented development, we have the opportunity to adjust or tweak our code to put in exactly the kinds of things that you're talking about that would get us the outcomes that we're looking for so that we're balancing uh, what development does with what our needs are. And then uh, kind of the second part of, uh, you know, that 40%. So that is a really magic number, but it doesn't exist in all of our zoning districts as 40%. So if you have a lot that has no trees on it whatsoever, let's say it's either gravel or grass or something, just there's nothing there. Uh, Maybe like one really sad bush. 
<laughs> you're not going to have any tree uh, protection or, or like tree canopy protection requirements because you don't have any tree canopy. So in that case, there's like no percent tree protection, right? Let's say you have the exact opposite of that and you have a lot that is completely covered in trees. And let's say some of those trees are like really good trees. They're great hardwoods. They're very healthy. And maybe some of them are hackberries, which are not as ideal uh, for trees. They're not things that we work really hard to protect usually, but we have a lot of them. And so um, if you were going to develop that lot that had all of the trees on it, the expectation would be that you preserve 40% of that tree canopy if that's what your particular zoning district required, some of our zoning districts, especially our more urban kind of center of the city zoning districts, have a lower percentage than that. So you might be down to only needing to uh, preserve like 20 to 15 percent of your tree canopy. But when we look at, you know, development versus tree canopy, those are some of the decisions that the city council weighs when they look at rezoning a request is how much tree canopy would you need to retain? Now, in some cases, um, like if you've just got, it's all, let's say it's all hackberry. That's not a really, um, that's not a tree canopy that we have a really high priority for. So maybe it's actually better if you were to replace some of that with better hardwood trees that are going to have a longer life, that are, are going to really contribute a lot more attributes uh, to our, our natural environment that we would want. So you might have some trade-off opportunities there. But if you're just looking at rough tree canopy numbers, it's really decided by your zoning district. And then like 40 is like at the top, and I want to say somewhere around 15 is at the bottom, depending. Nice. Thank you. I was, another thing I love about Fayetteville is that we don't have billboards. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and I just wanted to know, is that in the long-term plan to continue that? Because I really don't want to see that go away. Yes. So that is something that um, the, it's like the closest thing we probably have to a shrine is <laughs> our, you know, like, ha ha, we don't have to have billboards. So uh it's amazing how much law goes into uh, what your city can and can't do for regulations. And uh, that's a Supreme Court decision that upheld our ability to have that uh, prohibition in place. And so um, I'm going to say way back because I haven't really been here that long. And way back is the best I have because I don't remember the exact <laughs> year. So way back when, uh, no, somebody had a vision for when, uh, so when they built I-49, uh, somebody had a vision for the future of that place. And they said, wouldn't it be so great if we didn't have billboards junking this whole thing up? And that became, okay, for this particular kind of bubble of area on a map on either side, you can't have billboards and we're not going to allow them. And signs are one of the most hotly contested legal issues uh, in cities, and the Supreme Court has weighed in on this several times. Um, I could quote legal cases decided by the United States Supreme Court to you. It's basically um, down to cities cannot regulate content of signs, generally speaking. So you can't say what can and can't be on a billboard, but you can regulate things like location, materials, lighting, uh, kind of those more objective things, not the subjective things of like, you know, language and, and content. And so, um, and that's, I think, because a number of cities kind of went a little bit too far. And then that was like, okay, well, we'll just beat everybody back into, <laughs> you know, here's, here's the only things you're allowed to do. But what's different is that, um, so a lot of cities uh, have enacted, or even in some cases, counties that have zoning authority have enacted billboard bans. 
and those almost always get challenged in court because who wants billboards? Sign companies and people who can who can financially benefit from having those billboards. Or there's this really kind of famous case in California where there were billboards already and the, the city said we're not going to have any more billboards and the billboard companies were like, the heck you aren't. <laughs> um, and they had this like amortization schedule even where they're like, you know, we're, we're going to slowly get rid of all the billboards and kind of on the side. It was like this very rational plan and they're like, we're going to take you to court. And they did. And I, I think the court decided in favor of the city. Um, so that's kind of what happened here is we said, hey, part of our vision um, for this place that we enjoy and appreciate so much is we don't want billboards junking it up. And billboards are a type and a size and a material of sign, right? Those are things that you can regulate. And um, now if you let some people have billboards and other people not have billboards, that's a totally different thing. But if nobody can have billboards, then it's generally applicable. And um, and that was decided to be like a legitimate regulation. And so we don't ever want to lose that regulation because if that goes off the books, then we would have to like start from zero and we don't we don't know that we would have the same success yeah. in that. And so that's like one of the most like dearly enshrined regulations I think that we have for that reason, because it's a very special thing that we were able to get that legal support behind our regulation. That's not always the case. We're not always, <laughs> doesn't always turn out that way for us. So, um, so that's a really an important one. And um, it really, it makes a difference. You hear Definitely. people comment on it a lot. Well, and speaking of that, you said that's part of the kind of the vision of the city. What are some of the other concepts that are part of the vision of the city. If you were to speak in big picture terms, what type, like as a long-term planner, what do you see as the future of Fayetteville? Hey there, this is Nick. I'm just chiming in to tell you that the interview with Britton went on another 45 minutes or so, and it's just chock full of really, really good content. And I think you're going to love it. And I know that you're probably eager to hear more, but uh, we're going to have that in part two of this interview, which is coming very soon, and you're going to love it. So stay tuned. Stay tuned.